You don't need an MBA or have to be a business professor or have run 55 companies to do this. You just have to just sit down and think to yourself, or maybe with a group like this, hey, you know, how do you think about your budgeting cycle? How do you think about your planning cycle? What do you expect to get out of it? What's a typical range of investment for you? And a group like this is really excellent for something like that. So uh, I would say a, a little bit of forward thought will help you execute your business, realize value in your business, and to the extent you want to grow your business, it'll certainly provide a solid foundation to enable you to do that. Great topic coming up here, financial insights and mastery. And we've got some great panelists. Uh, can we throw up the panelist slide, guys, uh, to see who is on the panel? I don't know if we want to spotlight those folks, um, but uh, we're going to talk about um, finance and insights. Uh, and I know when we when we talk about this topic, like you know, anytime you bring up accounting and banking and finance entrepreneurs just get giddy with excitement, right? Because that's what entrepreneurs are wired to think about is debits and credits. No, not at all. Um, and so uh, I want you to think about the discussion here in terms of something that will excite you. And that is the mindset and disciplines of the entrepreneur that will lead to the kind of mastery that will produce the kind of financial results that you're wanting to see in your business. Okay. So that's what this is about. Now at the end of the day, um, if you're going to run a successful business in this industry, you do have to be on top of the mechanics of financial management in terms of those banking and accounting pieces. And so we've got some great experts on that as well. So let's go ahead and introduce the panelists uh, just high level. We've got uh, Joe Palvareri with Pure PM, Kristen Johnson also with Pure, and Allison DeSaro with Enterprise Bank. And I'm going to let them do the detailed uh introductions of themselves. I'm going to start with uh, you, Kristen. Uh, how did you become a finance-related expert in the PM space? You and I go back a while, so I don't have any qualms about calling you a finance expert in the PM space. And uh, what are some of, of your biggest lessons learned over the years? Um, so I started out in property management um, actually as a real estate paralegal. And uh, we did a lot of mergers and acquisitions throughout the country, um, and I oversaw a lot of the legal side of things, um, but always was intrigued by the finance side of it. And I, I have kind of a knack uh, for accounting and um, found my way into, you know, kind of overseeing that for our company and then eventually being asked even by uh, the state of New Mexico to be on an advisory board for them uh, on best practices for finance as well. So that's kind of my uh, transition into finance. Um, and then I think your second question, biggest lessons learned. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, being um, the steward of other people's money is, is huge. Right. And that's really what we are. We're the stewards of their biggest investment, which is their property. But if we can't figure out the accounting piece and we, we screw with people's money, then, um, you know, we can get in a lot of trouble. So I think, uh, just probably the the lesson of making sure that that's the top priority of uh, knowing what you're doing and uh, being a good steward for others. Mm -hmm. Kristen, um, I know that you know for the majority of your time in this industry, you have you know run your own uh, PM shop, and uh, now you're uh, a part of the team at Pure that's looking at the finances uh, of of acquisitions, and so just very high level. You know, what are some of the big opportunities that you're seeing in terms of 
of how property management companies can and need to be strengthening their, their financial position and, and their financial management? You know, I probably my number one suggestion is for people to actually learn and understand what a three-way tieout is. I have been shocked over the years, you know, doing acquisitions um, for our, our first company that Sean and I started, Independence Capital, and then as we became Home Vault, and um, as I transitioned into Pure and, and doing some outside consulting stuff as well, um, just the number of people who don't understand what a, what a three-way tieout is and, um, you know, you you have to treat every transaction with the mentality that it, it has an impact on something and you can't just plug numbers in to make things balance. Um, I've seen too many times where people have created a, a slush account, if you will, or a slush property where they're like, oh, I can't get this reconciled this month. So I'm just going to book it to this property and click the reconcile button and move on. Um, that's not proper accounting. So, you know, be, re be really cognizant of every transaction that you're making and, and what it does to impact the bottom line. Because if the money is not there, you have to find it. You, you can't uh, brush over it and put it on a slush fund. And I think where that comes from, Kristen, is, you know, entrepreneurs were, were running and gunning. And I think there's this mentality that, you know, sort of at the end of the day, what 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 comes out in the wash in your bank account is sort of what's left to you as an entrepreneur. And so the accounting is kind of what you need to do to report to the IRS at the end of the year and pay your taxes or not. Um, but that doesn't really work in this space where the money that you're managing isn't just your own at the end of the day. It's other people's. Uh, and so I think there is an important shift in the entrepreneur's mind that has to occur when you come into this industry in particular. And that is that accounting is not an afterthought of property management. In many ways, property management is accounting. Uh, so that's an important shift. Thanks for calling that out. Let's go to you, Allison. Um, how did you become everybody's favorite banker in this industry? I'm just going to say it. And what are some of the biggest lessons learned? Well, can you say that again at the end? Um, <laughs> no. Uh, thank you. No, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Um, so I actually specialize in um, the trust account setup itself at Enterprise, which was formerly Seacoast. And there's a reason why I said that, and I'll get to that with my lesson. But uh, so how did I get into it? Essentially, started with the bank and wanted to bank some property management companies back in 2010. Uh, the bank really wanted to get into it, but mainly we wanted to get into it because it's a pretty valuable, you know, it's pretty valuable money for a bank, so to speak. But getting into that industry, I realized I could just be a banker and just bank these companies for the same reason that maybe any other bank banks them, or I can really listen to what's, what's the issue here? What's the issue in the industry and what needs to be solved? And I realized very, very quickly um, in that first year that people were just having a lot of issues with their trust accounts. And it really stemmed from the trust account setup at the bank itself. So no one was really in a true trust account. They were just in a, a bank account with a nickname of trust account. Mm -hmm. So how was I going to solve that? I essentially spent all of 2010 and a good portion of 2011, not even really working. I think I produced nothing that year because I spent that whole time just meeting with auditors, um, attorneys, FDIC contacts, really just trying to figure out, okay, how do we solve this problem? And then I took it and I ran with it. And um, I've been doing it for almost 13 years now and um, really enjoying it. But uh, I guess I, what I would say my biggest lesson is so far is that 
there's like zero information out there, right? Like what, what the real estate commission, which is what a lot of people really put all of their eggs in um, and belief in is really very contradictory to how a trust account really should be set up. And, and people think that if they're just, you know, going to pass an audit, if, they're, if their goal is to pass an audit, then they're fine. They can usually pass that audit. Um, but really what's the priority? Is the priority passing an audit or is it protecting your client's funds? And that's my priority. And that's what I try to help customers with. Awesome. Great feedback. Let's go to you, Joe. And uh, obviously, uh, Joe, your background is in software and mergers and acquisitions. And so uh, I just kind of want to hear from you, you know, what are some of, you know, the perspectives that you're seeing as particularly important for this industry to have and be aware of uh, as you have uh, built and scaled Pure over the last couple of years? Yeah. And good afternoon, everyone. Happy to be here. And let me say quickly that Allison is my favorite banker and Christine is my favorite accountant, <laughs> just for the record. So everybody knows. Uh, but yeah, I've been in property management all of almost two years. Peers are a very young company, right? And prior to that, I spent a lot of time running financial services firms. And so always had a heavy, uh, heavy background, uh, sort of deep in compliance and, and basically, you know, not doing bad things with other people's money. So the, the parallels here are actually right on point. I would say the difference is and the thing that's been uh, most uh, interesting, you know, is we've acquired now 50 companies in less than two years, and we've seen 50 different sets of books and 50 different ways of accounting, uh, is, is that most of the businesses that we encounter, uh, and this will not, co not come as any great surprise, are kind of operating subscale from a finance perspective. And by that, I mean, uh, typically the person doing the books is also doing three or four other things, or they may not have the systems, they may not have the audit capabilities that you would have in a, in a larger scale platform. And so I think what that lends itself to is, uh, you know, to say it plainly, you know, a lot of the deals we see, there's just money missing. And that means it's not in the right account. Uh, it's been unintentionally diverted somewhere else. It never existed. And, and uh, there, there's kind of a lack of what you would call process and control from an auditable perspective. So if you were doing a gap audit uh, on a lot of these companies, you wouldn't pass. I mean, a lot of the companies that we see don't even have EBITDA, for goodness sakes, right? And so they don't do sophisticated accounting because they can't. They're doing a hundred other things and trying to grow their business and and build the best uh, you know enterprise they can build as an entrepreneur. So it's totally understandable. So we come in and look and see and, and say, okay, what's going on? And now I'll say 50, you know, 50 acquisitions in, in less than two years, we can safely say we've seen kind of every permutation of thing that's going on there. You know, good news is, you know, the people in this industry are highly ethical and awesome. So most of the things we discover are not intentional and they're easily rectified and you rectify them by, you know, putting a great accounting leader in like Kristen, uh, or you have a banker that runs literally almost hundred percent of your trust accounts like Allison. And so you, you get the best experts in the business you can scale around. And then uh, it's just a question of how quickly you can process uh, the exceptions as you see them. When we, you know, we buy about three companies a month. So we see about three different sets of books and records at any one time. Uh, it's fascinating. That's a great perspective. And, uh, you know, one of the things that, that comes to mind here is when it comes to the financial management of the business, um, a lot of, I think, entrepreneurs want to think that that's something that they can delegate. And certainly um, there are aspects that can be delegated. But I think what's coming out of what, what everybody's saying here is that um, the buck stops with the entrepreneur in terms of making sure the basic uh, T's are being crossed and I's are being dotted. And so we want to help you do that in this session. And we want to empower you to, to own that mastery and insight into your financial performance. And we're going to break this down into two basic sections. We're going to talk about um, the, 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 the basics of banking and accounting and, and what are some of the most important things that you have to keep in mind 
in terms of managing the baseline of how you're handling other people's money. And then we're going to get into financial performance. Um, folks, you can run a phenomenally run property management business that's delivering great customer experience and, you know, be making very little money. Um, the quality operations in many cases don't correlate to quality profit. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the awareness that you as an owner have around the key levers of financial performance in your business. So we want to dig into that a little bit and we want to answer your questions. So go ahead and um, if you've got questions on finance, banking, and accounting that you want us to be sure to hit in this session, uh, please just dump those into chat and we'll, we'll keep an eye on those. But let's go ahead and, and kick it off. Um, I'll never forget one of my first webinars that I did uh, in this industry. I made some passing comment about some guy that we had come across who had lost $150,000 um, due to uh, mismanagement of, of, of his trust account. He was upside down $150,000. And um, in the middle of the webinar, uh, someone chats me and says, Daniel, that's nothing. My number is three times that much. And uh, within a few months, that same guy reached out to me via email and said, hey, I'm selling the business um, because we just went upside down due to mismanagement of our trust funds. So the reality is this is an industry where those kind of catastrophes happen. Um, so, so, so Allison, I'm going to go to you on, on this one. I think we want to just start by creating some fear uh, for people to take action on. Uh, what are some of the biggest catastrophes that you and maybe you, Kristen, have seen uh, in terms of fraud or audit or just, you know, money's gone? Uh, the fear tactic. I love this. I actually um, will say this is actually like one of my favorite subjects is fraud, yet it's also a serious thorn in my side as a banker. So we see it all the time, right? I mean, I could go on and on and on about all the horror stories. I'd say probably the worst one that I have seen, and I wonder if this is actually the same person that you're speaking about, Daniel, um, which is actually a client of mine. And over a year period, I hope I get these numbers right. It was a very long time ago, but over a year period, his accountant, or company accountant, it was an internal accountant, uh, stole over $400,000 from his trust account. And she did it, I should have said they, sorry, they did it uh, through um, two different ways. One, signature stamps. So he had a signature stamp and she had the rights to use it. That's essentially why people get signature stamps so that they don't have to sign the stamps themselves, but still be within, you know, real estate or division of real estate guidelines. Um, and also by creating a vendor. So she created a vendor and the um, was paying to that vendor. That vendor was actually, it was actually, it actually ended up being somebody that she, this person knew. So they were kind of in on it together with somebody who was not within the business and who also had access to a bank branch um, contact. So they were able to steal this money over a year's period of time. Now, what's even worse about this is that this person was actually the godmother to this person's child. This is how long they've known each other. They knew each other since high school. They were basically family members. Um, he, they put all of their trust in this person. And, you know, I, I think that that's probably the worst case, but that's, that's actually very common in this industry. It's usually, you know, you find it, you hear, I hear it all the time. I'm sure, Daniel, you, you, I'm sure all of you guys hear it all the time. You know, they say, oh, my accountant, I can trust her with everything. I, you know, trust her, clearly trust her with my firstborn, right? So, um, unfortunately, the accountants get all the flack here, but I, I will say that it's, it's, um, 
that's usually where it starts. You just have all your trust in someone, they breach that trust and, and the money's gone and there's really nothing that he could do about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That, that, that was, that was pretty fear inducing. Thank you. Um, Kristen, um, I I just maybe want to ask you if you can just give a scenario where there's no fraud, um, no, no intentional, um, malfeasance, but just, you know, mismanagement. What are some of the, you know, common ways you've seen people end up upside down in their trust accounts? So, you know, I, I actually was helping with a cleanup on uh, some books not that long ago. And um, I came across a property that was set up and it was labeled, you know, something very generic, like ABC property. And there was no owner tied to it and no tenant had ever lived in the property. And um, there were all of these adjusting entries in it. So there would be some income, there would be some debits. And I was like, what is this about exactly? Like, can you explain this to me? And they're like, well, you know, we get to the end of the month and we're trying to get the account reconciled and we're off a few dollars. We just put a plug on this property, it balances and, you know, we're, we're off and moving. And like, yeah, that's, that's not okay. Well, it, we're talking to the tune of $200,000 that in the negative that this account is off. So that is money that the trust account is short, right? That the, the management company has misplaced and rather than dealing with it and finding where the money is at, they're just putting plugs into this fake property um, and moving on with their day. So that's great. Yeah. So, so I think that's a great segue into let's go ahead and talk uh, about some banking and, and accounting best practices. Um, Kristen, I'll start with you. You mentioned specifically this, you know, question of a basic triple tie. Um, I don't know that we want to get into the mechanics of what a triple tie out is today, but there's resources for that. Um, what would be some of the basic, you know, checks and balances that everybody on this call as a broker owner needs to make sure that they have uh, in place in their company? Um, so specifically to the, to the triple tie question, it's, it's actually fairly easy, right? Like you're looking at your bank account balance, you're looking at your, your ledger balance, and you're wanting to make sure that your, your property balances add up to that amount as well. You want to make sure that you're not having any negative show up on properties, which happens obviously when you're forcing funds, you're using Paul's money to pay for John's expenses, vice versa, um, you know, you want to make sure that you're never going into the negative on a property or an owner account, depending on the, the way that your portfolio works. But you should never see a negative on a general ledger when you're looking at, you know, your bank, your bank balances. Um, the only time you would ever see that is if you are forcing payments uh, to borrow from somebody else's accounts, which is commingling, right? So that's a huge issue. Um, I see that quite often as well. There's um, commingling happening. So that's number one. Um, oh man. I mean, those are two really big ones. Um, maybe we just, just, just touch on, um, let's just to touch on segregation of duties for a moment. Um, you know, uh, you know, you don't never want the same person depositing, uh, the money at the bank is also entering deposits mm-hmm. in, in the books. Any, any kind of feedback on, on just overall seg- segregation of duties for folks to keep in mind. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're the one entering the bills, somebody else should be approving them. Um, Somebody else should be issuing the payments. 
I, the one thing that I love about Allison Enterprise is that they have a function called positive pay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, Allison can speak more to the fraud that's happening outside of what we can control, you know, people getting a hold of checks and cashing them. And, and even I'm hearing ACH is becoming a huge fraud point as well, but making sure that you're uploading those uh, files to positive pay every day and verifying whoever's uploading should be verifying that that positive pay file is correct. And they should not be the same person that was writing the checks. Right. So if there's a, you know, an oversight person that's, you know, in our office, you would have seen early on that, oh, this, you know, this vendor is getting paid $400,000 this year. Mm, that's not a vendor we even use, <laughs> you know, yeah. we, that's something that could have been prevented by having somebody else um, with oversight authority. That's not the same person that's writing the checks. That's great. I just want to do a little plug here for the Narpama County standards. Folks, if you're not um, familiar with uh, this resource, uh, and this may be a good place to do a little introduction of myself, uh, I'm a CEO of Profit Coach, and a couple of years ago, Narpama hired us because uh, we do full service uh, financial advising, corporate accounting, and trust accounting uh, in this space. Um, Narpama hired us to write um, uh, the Narpama accounting standards, and one of the key things that I'll call out here is this financial controls guide. And so this is a really, really, really great place to get started in terms of, okay, you know, what are the essential broker owner responsibilities? Um, you know, the, how does this triple tap reconciliation work? And what are some basic recommended controls and procedures for every property management company here? So this is a great resource if you're looking for like, hey, how do I dive into what Kristen and Joe and Allison are talking about? This is a great resource available to NARPA members. And if you're not a NARPA member on the call today, then it's, it's, a, it's a quick membership fee to, to get that way. Uh, and this is certainly worth it. So I uh, want to make that resource available. Let's go to you, Allison. Um, let's talk about the banking side. You know, what are, what are some of the the banking best practices um, that you're you're seeing are really making a difference for folks that people need to be aware of? You know, actually, so Kristen really hit the nail on the head, positive pay. So, um, you know, just like Kristen said, you got to have a segregation of duties, right? But I think even beyond just within your office, right? Like your banker can't be your accountant, your, um, your corporate accountant can't be your trust accountant, right? You really have to have people doing you can't have a jack of all trades essentially, right? Like have everyone focus on what they're good at. That actually brings me back to the keynote speaker today made a comment. Um, he, the term he used was strategic, strategic ignorance, right? So have somebody like strategically ignorant to anything else that they have to focus on just tunnel vision. Um, so I definitely am on board with that, but I really want to, I want to focus on the positive pay. I think that that's like the number one thing that you can do when you're utilizing your bank for for fraud prevention. A lot of the fraud that we've been seeing in this industry, even though I I talked about internal fraud as a horror story, a lot of it that we've been seeing is external fraud. And it's kind of tricky external fraud, which will bring me to the positive pay um, introduction, but it's tricky because, you know, sure, a lot of people think of like ACH um, fraud, which is, Kristen, you're absolutely right, it's very prevalent right now, but, when it comes to check fraud, it's not just like someone steals your checks and writes a, a check for whatever amount and you might catch it. A lot of what's been happening is, you know, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, someone writes a check for you, the company writes a check for $400. It goes out, it, you know, it clears, you see that there's a check for $400 written with that check number, it clears perfectly. But what may have happened is that maybe somebody stole that check 
out of the mail and washed that check with the name. So you're really not going to find out until maybe, you know, three months later when you hear from that vendor that they never received that check. Well, now your account's been compromised. Um, so there is a, a portion of positive pay, most banks have it, um, called payee match positive pay. So what that does is that actually checks against the name of the payee on the check as well. It is a service that you have to sign up for with your bank. Um, a lot of people think that it's just too much work and they don't want to do it. I personally don't think it's a lot of work. Um, I don't know how much you want me to dig into how it works, but I'll try and do it from like a 60,000 foot level, so to speak. So really it's just, you're essentially telling the bank software what checks you wrote out. And that allows the bank to go ahead, again, it's all through software, but that allows the bank to go ahead and clear those checks as they're presented to the bank. Now it checks against a couple of different items, like for instance, um, the amount and the check number. Hopefully your bank has payee match as well, like I said, and it will check against the payee as well. And it will just clear. So that's step one. Okay, you have to tell the bank. Just Usually you can just pull a, a um, file from your software and upload that into your bank portal so that the system matches. Now, if it doesn't match, it doesn't match for one of two reasons. One, there was fraud, or two, um, you know, you forgot to tell the system. So then it goes into exception and you can clear or reject those items from the exception report each day. Now, I think that's where people think it's a lot of work, right? Because you are um, having to go in in their mind every day, but you really shouldn't have to go in every day. You should just be able to tell it what you wrote and then not have any exceptions. Um, now, like Kristen said, you wanna have somebody, you know, approving those who's, not, who's also not uploading those. Um, but I think if you're not doing that, the very, very, very least that you can do in, at your company is daily reconciliation. And whether you do that internally and you have somebody actually focus on just the trust account and not the corporation as a whole, um, or you have a third party resource do that, like a third party accountant, for instance, um, it, it needs to be done because you don't want to be at a loss, right? Like, sure, if, there's, if the account's compromised, you may have to go through extra steps with your bank to maybe open up a new account, but at least you're not losing the money. Banks only have a certain amount of time to return items. And that's a pretty big misconception in not your industry, just in general, um, in customers at banks, they think, oh, the bank can just go ahead and give me the money back at any time. We have, we, we're regulated as well, and we only have a certain time frame to return those funds. Great. Hey, folks, that's some really, really distilled best practice there for how to uh, stay on top of other people's, other people's money in this industry. So thank you, uh, Allison and Kristen, for that feedback. Um, take action on that. And again, get your hands on, on the NARPA Accounting Standards Financial Controls Guide and, and a big shout out to NARPA for uh, producing that guide. All right. Um, I want to segue to financial performance. We've got a question uh, for, for Joe. Uh, this is coming in from Michelle. Uh, it's a good sweat segue here. Um, what are the most important numbers that you're looking at when evaluating a company? Are you using specific calculations? Ah, great question. Thank you. Uh, you know, th there's a couple really recently that are or that are important. The, the first is, you know, how does the business uh, perform from what I'll call a, a direct or a net margin perspective, right? And so this is uh, effectively what is the profit of the business? Most of them don't have EBITDA in in the conventional sense that you would think about it in the corporate context. So it's really down to the margin, which is effectively what the owner or proprietor is taking home every year. And if you have a 
a relatively sophisticated organization. You look at direct margin because there's probably some expenses that are being offloaded into another entity. Uh, if it's kind of a sole proprietorship, you're, you're looking at net margin because everything is kind of flowing through the business. So we look, we look at that and see where it is, but, but not so much where it is, but, but where it could be from our perspective. And we've got you know, the benefit of, you know, having done this 50 times and, and having, you know, I think it's at last count 2000 years of property management experience in our firm, right? So we, we know a little bit about how to look at a property management company and how it should run. And so we look at it uh, for what is it doing today? And what is its potential tomorrow? And a lot of the delta between what it does today and what it could do tomorrow from a profitability perspective uh, is in stuff that comes kind of in, in two categories. One is uh, one of the best things about this business is most of the leaders of these businesses are are really what I would call full-scale entrepreneurs. And by that, I mean, uh, they've got their hands in all sorts of entrepreneurial endeavors. In fact, I don't think we've met a single company yet that doesn't, that only runs one company, right? So, you know, a common, a common thing we see is you've got a property management business and you probably have a brokerage or a realty and you run a maintenance company as well. And and somehow all of these things get uh, confused in a single series of accounts when they should really, you know, in, in a perfect world, they would look like a line of business that would make it easier for the operator. It would make it cleaner for people like us who look at companies and try to figure out, you know, what they look like down the road if they were to join with Pure. And, and so there's a there's a, a necessary set of avoidable confusion that is created by the fact that entrepreneurs will be entrepreneurs and we're more interested in doing things than, you know, maybe laying the groundwork to, to cleanly account for them on the back end, because that's not as fun, you know, no offense to the accountant crowd, right? But it's just, it's more fun to go out and do your business. Uh, and the second, the second, piece, <laughs> the second piece uh, that we see frequently is, is what, uh, you know, my, my co-founder, Mike calls the run-throughs in the business. And, and, and the run-throughs are things that you do personally that you put through the vehicle that is your business. And, and so, you know, We've seen all kinds of examples. I've seen uh, vacations to Disney World. I've seen Maserati lease payments. I've seen you know everything in between. And those are stuff that's not really business related, although there is potentially a tax benefit of doing it that way. It's it really detracts from what is the bottom line of the business and what's the what's the forward potential of the business. And and uh, th those are the two most common sources uh, of issues. And, and I think there's a little bit of a tweak out there that I'm starting to see. That's more, it's becoming, it's not yet a trend, but, but some people in the industry are starting to do it. And it makes a lot of sense structurally is folks who have multiple lines of business, which, you know, as, as I said, about hundred percent of the people we see have begun to structure them in, in a, what I would call a more sophisticated way, but it's easy. Uh, they have what I call a holding company and that's the company. It could be Daniel LLC, right? And Daniel LLC, that's where all the run-throughs go. Daniel LLC provide services out to all the operating companies, which could be property management, brokerage, maintenance, whatever. Uh, and that kind of a structure, while it sounds complicated because you've gone from one to four, is actually much cleaner when you get around to tax and you actually want to know what you're looking about from looking at from a profitability perspective. And then it allows you to look into each line of business cleanly, if you will, property management, brokerage, maintenance, whatever it is, and see how it really performs. And when you see how it really performs, you can start to make better decisions about it. And the decisions that I think, you know, personally, it's only one man's opinion are important uh, is, is there's a culture of being reactive in a lot of property management businesses, where as long as things are like not blowing up, we're kind of okay with that. 
and we're not looking too far ahead if we don't have to. And I think that's not not a great strategy as the industry you know starts to change more rapidly and and frankly grow. Uh, there's a lot more money at stake now for for people who participate in the industry. And and so the number one metric we look at for our business and and as we think about bringing businesses into our business is ARR or annual recurring revenue. And so annual recurring revenue. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, uh, the, the, and I'm not an accountant, I'm an economist and a rehabilitated M&A lawyer, right? So I'll give you the, the plain English version. The, the definition of annual recurring revenue is basically your next 12 months revenue, right? What does that look like for you? And, and the way you get at that in kind of a shorthand basis from a property management perspective is what's the value of the contracts I have signed from a management fee, pers- management fee perspective? Uh, what's my estimate of leasing and other fees that I'll make off those properties? And then what will I make you know, on maintenance if I do maintenance? And you kind of roll all that up and you have a forecast of what your revenue and correspondingly your expenses will look like over the next 12 months. And so we look at companies and we say, look, what is their ARR now? And what can it be if we were to bring them into pure and spread a lot of the stuff that they don't like to do, like accounting and leasing and all the common back office stuff, spread it across the corporate infrastructure and let them just work on growing the business and making it profitable. So uh, I guess the two themes would be think think about being proactive uh, when you think about your business. It's actually, you can do it relatively simply. It doesn't have to be difficult. And then really have an eye on, you know, what does my revenue look like this year? And how reliable is that for me so I can make good economic decisions in the business? Great, great feedback. And, uh, you know, just want to put three exclamation points on Joe's point around segregating the different divisions. Again, a little uh, shout out to the NARPM chart of accounts. Um, but I'll just throw up, throw up uh, this value proposition here when it comes to a standard chart of accounts. Uh, and if you're looking for a way to do this within one set of books, uh, Joe gave an option for doing it in, in several sets of books, which is an option as well. Uh, but the NARPM chart of accounts really helps with financial clarity around separating the divisions um, and then uh, also gives you uh, a way to actually calculate some of those key metrics uh, in, a, in, a, in a careful way, in an accurate way in terms of, hey, what is the revenue per unit and uh, how do I use that to get calculations around annual recurring revenue and whatnot. So um, that's a great place to get started in getting some of that kind of, kind of financial clarity that Joe's talking about so you can make smart decisions related to each specific business unit. Um, Kristen, uh, let, let's go to you and, and just say, all right, when it comes to managing the financial performance of a property management business day in and day out, um, what are some of the, the metrics that you guys have found to be really influential in actually optimizing the bottom line of the business? Um, so for us, we always paid really, really close attention to DLER. It's like probably the number one indicator of profitability uh, for a property management company because we are so labor heavy. So um, if you can figure out ways to optimize your direct labor efficiency, um, that will directly correlate to your profitability. Um, so that's, that's probably my number one. Um, Any others, Kristen? Um, we always looked at revenue per door. Um, you know, we, we always set really high goals for ourselves, uh, revenue per door wise. Um, there's property management is a lot of stacking nickels to make a dollar. Um, and so there's, and there's a lot of ways that, you know, we didn't ever really call them. Um, we never hated referring to it as fee maxing, but it was value maxing. So how can we create value, uh, through, you know, services, 
Um, and we always wanted there to be a direct service related to it, um, whether or not it was a hard service or, you know, we, we provide this feel good thing. Um, but it was always some kind of value that we were adding. And so really driving up that revenue per unit uh, was a big thing that we always paid attention to as well. Great feedback. Um, I'll just add a couple uh, to those. So Kristen touched on direct labor efficiency. Again, you know, that, that basic calculation being how many dollars of revenue do we get for every dollar we spend on labor? You can improve that either by increasing your revenue per unit or uh, by you know, lowering your cost on labor through gains in efficiency or perhaps you know, leveraging global talent. So um, Kristen mentioned that one, revenue per unit. And I just want to underscore revenue per unit to both Kristen and Joe's points. And that is um, that you know, one of the most significant things that we see in this industry in terms of how people turn around their financial performance is by just a little bit more attention to pricing. Um, and, and this is a world in which a you know, 10% improvement of revenue per unit can result in a 100% increase to the bottom line. That's how powerful this lever is. And so um, you know, it's great that we're in the middle of a, a triple win leadership exchange. And the point of all that being, you know, how can we as, as, as folks in this industry continue to uh, hone in on the ways that we can deliver value and create value? Uh, and if you're thinking about that and not just how do I get the property leased, but a bigger picture conversation around how do I facilitate the end result objectives of my owner's and then monetize that, um, you're going to be head and shoulders above the crowd in terms of actually running a profitable business. And, and revenue per unit is one of the best ways that you can measure and monetize uh, and monitor that. Obviously, bottom line profitability, Joe talked about that. Uh, another one that we would just recommend to you is um, managing your, your, your overhead, your non-labor overhead uh, in terms of some key buckets of expenses and, and monitoring those uh, as a percent of revenue. So how much do we spend on facilities as a percent of revenue? How much do we spend on payroll taxes and benefits as a percent of revenue? How much do we spend on just other operating expenses as a percent of revenue? And again, you can get some really great benchmarks from the Narcombe accounting standards in terms of where you should be in those buckets. We've seen people spending, you know, way too much on some of those buckets and completely gobbling up their profits and not even knowing it. Um, and two other quick metrics that I'll just mention briefly here being um, new unit uh, uh, unit churn. This is a great way um, to really keep a pulse on your overall client experience. Um, what's the rate at which units are turning out? Um, just it's always humorous, humorous to me when I talk to property managers. I've never met uh, a property manager that had a, a, a churn problem because of service. It's always the market, right? Um, and, and there's no doubt that the market plays into these things, but, but you do have churn as a result of service issues and you need to know what that is and what those issues are. So keeping a close eye on, on that can really help you improve your customer experience. And then from a scaling perspective, unit acquisition cost, uh, how much does it cost for us to add on a new unit? Um, once you've um, delegated some of those other tasks, as Joe was talking about, and really poured yourself into growth, you need a metric to be able to measure your return on investment in terms of the time and energy that you're, and, and the, and the uh, expenditures you're putting into growth. And this is the metric to really make sure that you're scaling your growth efforts efficiently. So hopefully those will be some, some key metrics that will help you in that regard. Um, um, Joe, you talked a little bit, I want to just start to wrap up here. Uh, and any other questions, folks, go ahead and, and, and throw those in chat. Um, Joe, you talked about 
sort of, you know, the future focus, um, any, any, based on your just background in general in finance, any best practice recommendations on budgeting and forecasting and really just getting out of the rat race of I'm going to do the next thing to really planning the financial future and outcome of, of a business? Uh, yeah, a few. Um, at the risk of being heavy handed, I don't, uh, I don't recommend this for every single enterprise, right? But the larger you get, the more necessary it becomes. Uh, you know, we tend to look, uh, and not just in the property management space, but in, in a lot of previous businesses that have you know, grown large and scaled in fintech and e-commerce and, and other places, you know, including public exits, you look at things in a three-year cycle. And that may sound like, whoa, I'm thinking about three months, three years is awfully long for me. But if you can look at it in a three-year cycle where you pretty much understand what's going to happen in year one, and by that, I mean strategically and economically. So what are you going to do that year? What is it going to cost? What do you expect to get back? So a lot of the items that you were touching on as well, Daniel, you had them broken out in a more eloquent way, but it's generally, you know, what do I do? What do I spend? And what do I get? If you know that kind of year one, year two should be a little, you know, a few big ideas in there for how you grow your business, assuming that's what you want to do. And most of the businesses I'm familiar with have been, you know, kind of grow at all costs, right? That's just the the training and the mandate for those sorts of technology businesses up till now. And then year three is something really aspirational. What do I want to be when I grow up? And then you roll that three-year cycle forward on a yearly basis with the emphasis being, uh, I want to make sure my year one plan, uh, the first year or the year I'm in, the next four quarters is pretty set. And that means I've thought about what the economics look like. I thought about the initiatives I'm going to do so I can track them. I can measure them. I can grade myself on how well I did. And I can see what the results have been. What's my return on investment for the effort I put in? And, and if nothing else, um, just the fact that you have an infrastructure uh, in place like that, and it doesn't have to be some great treatise uh, or constitution about how you run your business. It can be you know, written down on a napkin if it has to be, or it can be on a PowerPoint slide. You know, Here's the three things I'm going to go do. And here's what they cost. And here's what I expect to get. And by the way, I suggest you keep it at three. What are the big three things you're going to do and how you can imagine? And just getting that kind of clarity of thought, uh, unless you're the kind of person who can keep everything in your head perfectly at all times, which you know I know a few, but let's face it, not many of us could do that. Uh, it, it will help you uh, when, when all else fails and when times get tough or when the business gets crazy in a good way or a bad way, if you kind of go back to that, it will orient you to what your mission is. And that's a mission you will have been thoughtful about. And so it, just a little bit of time, uh, you know, it's always like pra- practice like you want to play, right? So this, this is really practice. So think about how I want to do something, think about what I'll get out of it and then start doing it and then feel free to adjust it every quarter as you go forward. Uh, and then as you get comfortable with that kid and start thinking bigger uh, and start putting more structure around it, like I'm going to have my budgeting done in the fourth quarter every year, if you run on a calendar quarter, and then I'm going to execute that budget the next year. And uh, just that simple stuff, and you don't need an MBA or you have to be a business professor or I've run 55 companies to do this. You just have to just sit down and think to yourself or maybe with a group like this, hey, you know, how do you think about your budgeting cycle? How do you think about your planning cycle? What do you expect to get out of it? What's a typical range of investment for you? And a group like this is really excellent for something like that. So uh, I would say a, a little bit of forward thought will help you execute your business, realize value in your business. And to the extent you want to grow your business, it'll certainly provide a solid foundation to enable you to do that. And folks, that is a great place to hit pause on this breakout. Thank you so much, Allison, Kristen, Joe. I appreciate the thoughts and feedback shared. Thank you, everybody, uh, for the questions. That's all for today's Triple Win Property Management Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for sharing a piece of your life with us. We do not take it for granted. 
I also want to give a shout out to Carol Housel for everything she and our team does to make these possible. It's crazy to think about over 5,000 professional property managers have pressed play on episodes in season one and season two now. And we really want to encourage you to keep giving feedback because more and more people are listening. It's getting better and better and better thanks to everything that you're sharing with us. If you like this enough to listen, I want to encourage you to share it with other people. Um, you can give us feedback directly on those social media channels, Facebook, LinkedIn, wherever you're hanging out. You can also send us an email at triplewin at secondnature.com. And we just want to give more. We're, we're, there's no sales pitch here. Just want to offer more resources that help you find and stack your next triple win and become a triple win driven property manager. So where can you find that? You can find the private Facebook group. You can find our blog. You can find our newsletter. You can find more resources all at rbp.secondnature.com. Com. Just search for what you're looking for there. And every time we see you, we want to see a better version of you and your business. To that end, keep it going, feel inspired, take our encouragement, and we'll see you next time.